Welcome back to Shore Sports Talk on 94.3 The Point, sponsored by Shoreline Wealth Management. I am Vin Ebenu, and I am joined this morning by Kirk McKnight, author of The Voices of Baseball, now out there on Amazon and wherever you find books, all about the stories that baseball play-by-play broadcasters, past and present, are telling about the ballparks they're in and the teams that they're covering. It is a very insightful and amazing book. Um, and Kirk, before we dive into some of uh, what you covered here in the book, just want to welcome you onto the show. Well, thanks for having me. So, you know, I think it, one of those things, and you hinted at it towards it, in the book as well with Vin Scully, is that he just was so widely respected and loved everywhere, from every fan base, every broadcaster, um, and he's just. I think it's agreed that he's just the best baseball play-by-play broadcaster there ever was, and it's kind of like, okay, how can we learn from Vince Scully to be better play-by-play broadcasters and everything? And I thought you highlighted that really well in this book with um, the narratives from some of the other broadcasters, but also your own personal story with Vince Scully as well. So um, what was that like, your interaction with Vince Scully and talking to him? Well, that was, you know, I I feel like I, up to that point, I feel like I'd had enough not enough, but you can never have enough pinch me moments, but I feel like I'd had plenty. And, uh, but that really was a pinch me moment that made you kind of think, no, this one is, <laughs> you know, talking with John Sterling, you know, in, in, in the visiting booth at, at, at the, uh, angel stadium of Anaheim before watching the Yankees beat the angels. Okay. That was amazing. Talking with John Miller, uh, in person and, in a in a Sheridan or, or wherever in Scottsdale, Arizona, and typing in his name, you know, into my uh, audio recording software, you know, and that's it. I'm really talking with John Miller. That's, that's surreal. But the, those still get trumped by speaking with Vince Scully and having him call you and, you know, introducing himself to me, you know, saying, hi, I'm Vince Scully. I broadcast Los Angeles Dodgers baseball. Like he's talking to a guy who's doing a book on baseball broadcasting and he still feels he has to tell me what he does for a living. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so that right there started the whole, you know, the 30 minute conversation that we had. And I just thought, wow. You know, this I'm talking with a, a, a living legend, and I have talked with living legends before, but I'm talking with a living legend who probably is the pinnacle of broadcasting in any sport. And now he is willing to share his memories for this book that I'm doing. And it just really, like, it really catapulted my spirits about it all. And I just thought, well... You know, this 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 really is going to be the peak of it all. You know, and I've had interviews since. I've I've talked with Bob Costas, and I've talked with Bob Euchre, and and even Tom Hamilton discussing the Cleveland Indians slash Guardians. I mean, these are these are all awesome moments in my interviewing, uh, you know, experience. But I mean, they all they all come in second, obviously, to talking with them. You're definitely somebody I um, always love listening to, love, you know, looking up to and everything. And certainly, you know, it helps with uh, MLB Network once that came into existence with, you know, allowing, you know, everybody to watch more Vin Scully broadcast, um, you know, on on that level and everything. And just hearing how smooth he is and calling a game, 
his descriptions of everything going on, his storytelling abilities, um, and just you know describing you know the Dodger Stadium at, in Chavez Ravine. Um, what were some of the things that, that you learned about Vince Scully and his style of broadcasting from his days in Brooklyn out to Los Angeles, and just how he what he did it um, over the course of a broadcast? We see. I, I consider myself comparatively young uh, when I'm talking with broadcasters. You know, I mean, they're, most of them are all older than I am, obviously. I'm 44 years old. And, and so, to me, don't realize that somebody like Vince Scully himself had a tutor. And so learning, you know, speaking with Vin and realizing that, you know, him admitting that he basically learned the ropes from Red Barber... And you're thinking, wow, oh, so you mean somebody taught you, <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> but like you, you yourself were a student, you know, and, and then obviously people of a generation older than me would remember when Red Barber used to call games for the Dodgers and the Yankees and, and, um, and basically, uh, okay, uh, <laughs> where, you know, Vin got these things and, and, and Vin made them the, you know, Vin made things his own, though, too. And that's obviously Vin made things his own. Mm. Um, but just just kind of having that thought and having that, way, wow. So, you know, you you yourself were like the Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of thing. You were Mickey Mouse, you know, uh, the, the brooms getting out of hand with the spell going wrong or something, possibly, you know, that you were still, like, learning and taking notes from somebody like Red Barber, which which is, I mean, if, if you think about it, Red Barber... Um, it's only fitting that he he learned from somebody like Red Barber because Red Barber himself is probably thought of as one of the greatest broadcasters of, of taking somebody by the hand who's listening in on the game and taking them through the broadcast. So those things just make sense. It's just I'm from a younger, you know, I'm from a, a, a younger generation. And so these things basically become knowledge to me as they come along. They They weren't already like in my memory bank because... I didn't live through them. And, and st- I want to stick with the Dodgers here uh, and, and talk about Charlie Steiner. And I remember vaguely when he was on SportsCenter, but I mean, as, a, as growing up as a Yankee fan, I remember him in the booth with John Sterling in 2003 and mm-hmm. four. Um, and of, uh, of course, he's got one of the most iconic broadcast calls in the history of baseball with Aaron Boone's uh, Game 7 walk-off against the Red Sox in 03. That that'll live on forever. But I mean, in reading your book, just Charlie Steiner, a lifelong Dodgers fan, um, and the way he described getting used to you know broadcasting remotely during the COVID pandemic a couple of years ago, um, and getting to call the Dodgers winning a World Series, you know, it was like this he's out of body experience for him. So, uh, <laughs> what, what was it like for in covering Charlie Steiner and, and sharing his broadcast experience? Well, I feel like Charlie Steiner might have been one of the top uh interviews i've done i've done a couple interviews <laughs> with him but they're always entertaining they're one and i say they're one of the top because it's just he's so entertaining to listen to he's so entertaining to hear a story from and and i mean i have met him in person and seen him a couple of different times and in, in the booth or at spring training or you know on the road in, in a padres game or something like that and uh Knowing, you know, in 2014, the first time I interviewed him and seeing, you know, his journey to becoming where he was at 2014 and being in the booth with Scully, 
and and being the person who caught the, the the broadcasting bug at a very young age by listening to Scully in his basement, you know, and uh, you, then you see that in 2020 he actually had this experience of you know 65 years later, basically from when the Dodgers beat the Yankees on Johnny Padres shutout, you know, and that's the game that kind of hooked him as far as like this is amazing and this is baseball and. And now he's calling the Dodgers winning the World Series. And he's calling it from his living room, where he was as a little six- or seven-year-old pretending to call games in his basement. And so it was like a full circle thing. And, and, and if you think of the, the number 65, it's such a fitting number because it's, it's, like, it's, like the, it's like the token age of retirement. <laughs> you know, like this is 65 years, this is your career, this is your life, and now your life can you can go off into the sunset now. And, like, honestly, you think about that, you're like, so Charlie just drove, you know, he, he made that call from his living room and he took his headset off and that's when he retired, right? Well, no, but, you know, it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> and so for him to have that full circle experience like that and share it with you, especially knowing his personality, it's such a great part of the book. And, and I was grateful for that. Uh, I was... I was actually grateful for the Dodgers winning the World Series because it gave Charlie that that experience. That was the only reason I was pulling for the Dodgers in 2020. Otherwise, I'm all I'm all about the Rays because I'm all about somebody. When you think about that that World Series, if you think about it in terms of payroll, uh, it would have been a great story if the Rays would have actually won that 2020 World Series. But the fact that the Dodgers won, I could take some solace in knowing that Charlie got his moment. You know, Ben had been returned for about four years, but and now here's Charlie on the call, and he basically had a pathway to that moment set up basically for him. You know, we were we're going through these problems where people are having to broadcast from a, a remote studio or something, and, and Charlie's just sitting there shaking his head in a Zoom meeting with the Dodgers organization, like, what are we doing here? Like, <laughs> And, uh, you know, getting the phone call later after the Zoom meeting saying, you seemed upset. And he's just thinking, you know, is this what's going to do me in? Is COVID going to cut me off at the knees? Is this the end of my career? And, and the fact that they were able to play around it and have him broadcast from his living room, I mean, you don't do that for your everyday broadcaster. If you're if you're basically uh, a general manager or the media relations manager for team, you don't do that for just anybody. But they did it for Charlie, and I'm glad they did. And and Charlie was that very deserving of being able to have that moment to call that World Series with. Talking with Kirk McKnight this morning, author of the book The Voices of Baseball. Kirk went ahead East Coast here um, with starting with the Yankees and the Mets. Certainly um, with the Yankees, I know you said you had an encounter with John Sterling in the past out in uh, in Anaheim before the Yankees played the Angels and everything, but yeah, John, John's been doing Yankee games since 1989. I know he was with the Atlanta Braves before that. Michael Kay went into the radio booth um, in the mid-90s as well, and then he went over to the Yes Network in 2002. Um, but they've just been there. They've been a staple of Yankees broadcasting now for at least 30 years, um, and Sterling's had a a, like again, a, a career before that, um, but it was there's just like this sense of tradition and pride with the Yankees and Yankee Stadium, and 
you know, and I know you touched on the ballpark and everything too, but they just want to feel like they wanted to get it right. The seats are a little bit bigger, more cushions, but there's more suites. I think Sterling described it as like a bunch of condos. Um, so in, in covering the Yankee Stadium part, I guess the old stadium, new stadium, and in, in talking to John Sterling and Michael Kay, I mean, what were your biggest takeaways from them? Well, I actually am a Yankee fan myself. Uh, since this book has come out, I've become a more all-encompassing fan of all the teams, but all the teams except for a couple. I don't even name those two. But, um, you know, I'm, I've been a more of a fan of, of the Yankees throughout the way because Cecil Fielder was my favorite player. And when he went to the Yankees in July of 1996, I went to the Yankees in July of 1996. <laughs> I, I was a diehard Tigers fan, and, and but I was a diehard Cecil Fielder fan above all. And so, you know, I was able, and people call me a bandwagon, but they don't understand the story. I, I was a Cecil Fielder guy. And so, um, you know, and, and, and I was there as a fan to, to experience, you know, five World Series titles over the next, you know, 15 years or so. And, and John Sterling, <clears throat> about John Sterling is that you, you mentioned he was broadcast with the Braves. Well, he broadcast with the Braves during the 80s, and, uh, and my favorite player was Del Murphy. Ah. And so, you know, and so when I'm, I'm basically, I, I always felt like there was some kind of familiarity. But when I was a really young kid when, when, when Sterling and Murphy <clears throat> were with the Braves. And so I, I knew there was always some kind of familiarity with John Sterling. Getting ready for the interview with him uh, the morning in the in the hotel, and then you know knowing I'm going to be speaking with him in the booth, I sat there and thought, oh, you know, I'm reading up on his name. I'm like, that's right. You know, he was with the Braves. To think about going from the mediocre, the mediocre '80s Braves to the mediocre late '80s Yankees, having to kind of still go through the go through the trenches a little bit for a few years, and then all of a sudden being able to call four World Series championships in five years and then call another one about nine years after that. And and, and you think about and you think about Sterling in the booth with him and I see his World Series ring and it looks like a ring pop ring. <laughs> it is just so massive. It looks like a ring pop ring that's full of diamonds. Like like some little kid comes and finds it in his dad's Dining is like, can I eat this? And that's like, absolutely not. You can't. <laughs> you know, and so that to me is is a perfect a perfect illustration of of Yankees baseball and the Yankees. Uh, you know, just like John said, he said, you know, the Yankee Stadium is like a five star. Actually, Howie Rose was the one that said that. He said Howie Rose said that for the Mets said that. The New Yankee Stadium is like a five-star hotel. Oh yeah, that <laughs> built around a ballpark, and and that's and that's so when you see John Sterling sitting there holding that ring like that, you know, wearing that ring like that, it's not like he's sitting there flashing around like he's you know notorious big like going into a club. It's just that's that's the way the Yankees do, and so seeing that and then seeing that as a perfect illustration of of of. The way the Yankees go, they go big, you know, and then they do it big because they're the Yankees. You know? I mean, uh, outside of the Dallas Cowboys and like one um, one's professional soccer team somewhere that just makes ridiculous amounts of revenue, I, I, I think the Yankees are basically up there in the top three of, of all sporting events. But I'm pretty sure as far as revenue and value of the team, that's that's where they are. They're the, they're the top. 
And so John has had a very blessed, you know, tenure there with the Yankees, you know, starting out with those few years where they were still bad, but then they started to get good. And and then they even got better. And and so it's like Michael Kay did say, he said, you know, I've just been blessed to be around this. He feels very blessed himself to be to have been around calling players like Jeter. I mean I, I I I can't think of another player who has accomplished more in the last thirty years than Jeter. Uh, as far as you know, Pujols comes in there probably uh, around there. Mm. Uh, as far as just you know, if you think of accomplishments, uh, you think of championships. You know, Jeter has the five, Pujols has the two, and you think of offensive statistics. Jeter also is a great defensive shortstop. So, I mean, if you think of, like, that you basically are able to call the entire career of somebody like Derek Jeter, you have a very blessed one. And now we have players like Judge that are, that are there, and, and there's other, you know, and then Mariano Rivera. Let's not forget about Mariano Rivera. Yeah. I mean, Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter are two figures that, you you know, you just consider yourself among the, the, the most blessed to have if you have one of them. And able to and able to call their entire career, and these guys were able to call both of these guys entire careers. Going going over to Queens, and you touched on Howie Rose, Kirk. Uh, he another kind of like Michael Kay and even Charlie Steiner, just with lifelong fans of their teams. Uh, Howie Rose, big time Mets fan, uh, but he, he's had a phenomenal career. He's got that. I, I, I've always sensed that that pride for the Mets history and tradition and everything. And even when they were go, going over from Shea Stadium to uh, to now City Field and the way they were designing that ballpark, um, he just told such a great story about how the the tradition of the Mets has carried over from their their World Championship teams in Shea Stadium, the the Amazons, and then certainly now in City Field and trying to you know get a, a title or two over there came close a few years back. Um, but in covering Howie Rose for the for this book, um, what? What did you? What, what were some of the biggest things you learned about Howie Rose and the Mets? Well, I, you know, Howie basically, it's 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 like you mentioned. It's great that Howie was able to be the fan of, of the team growing up, and basically is the is the voice of them. You know, and is one of the voices that people point to, as far, especially on the radio. But you know, he he considers that 1969 team, the Amazons, like one of the greatest New York, if not the greatest New York sports story ever told. You know, and I know that, like, I'm, I'm here on the west side, but I know that a lot of people on the east coast will probably agree with that sentiment. Even though, you know, that's, that's one championship, and you got the Yankees on the other side with, however, you know, they're 27, you got the Mets with the, you know, the 69 and the 86, and, and, and those are two titles, but that 69 championship is, like, so cherished in the hearts of people who were there around when it happened, and he was one of those. And so to, it's kind of like it's a springboard to, you know, to basically get you uh, off and running. <laughs> and he has been off and running, and he has had some awesome moments to, to call. And one of the main reasons, I'd already actually spoken with Wayne Hagen for a lot of the City Hill stuff for the book, and Wayne was great. You know, Wayne was there just a, a short bit, and he gave me plenty of perspective on City and a couple of things on Shea. But he wasn't calling the game when Johan Santana pitched that no-hitter. And mm. Howie put such a great perspective on that, on that Johan Santana no-hitter because you think about it, I mean, what was he, in the 140 range pitch-wise? And just, like, you, nowadays you do not do that to a pitcher. Now, 
you know, re- you read old books, these pitchers do like 200 pitches sometimes in these 16 inning games or whatever back in the, not necessarily modern era baseball, but, you know, that game really, it, it cemented him in Mets history as far as Johan Santana, but I mean, it really kind of set the tone for the rest of his career, which really kind of took a turn for the worse because of those kinds of things and pitching 140, throwing 144 pitches and, and, you know, he never was the same player since, but he said, you know, he, he himself said, I wouldn't trade for anything, you know, I would still do what I did. And, and you know, uh, let's see, Terry was the manager, wasn't he, uh, for the Mets when... when, uh, when um, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, Terry Collins, yeah. Yeah, so Terry Collins, you know, you're thinking that from a manager perspective, most managers would have taken him out, you know, regarding... regarding oh, yeah, especially in today's game. game. Yeah, today's game, and, and 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 Terry knew that like there's no way that he could live it down if he did. You know? uh, yeah, <laughs> that was a tough, it was a tough spot for him. This dream was made first no hitter, you know. And, and what's even funnier is, is like you know, fast forward a few years a few years later, and asked, and I was talking to Howie about this uh, for the, you know since the original edition of the book came out, I was talking to him about. You know, the combined no-hitter. And he's like, you know, <laughs> it obviously doesn't have the same sentiment. As, right. <laughs> you know, as, you know, as, as the first, but also just one person doing it and doing it in the manner that Johan did. So I was really grateful to be able to put that in the City Field chapter. It's really a, you know, it's, it's really a, a strong part of the book, if you think about it, because you know it's such, historically, it's such a huge thing. Same thing with the Musgrove no-hitter from 2021. It was the first no-hitter for the Padres. Oh, yeah? There's a backstory for that one, too. And so many broadcasters, I mean, you think about it, so rarely is there a chance to call a no-hitter a perfect game, and then you want to you want to get it just right. And these, these broadcasters, you know, you put a little pressure on yourself because you want to call it like a game, but also understand that a little bit of history is being made here as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and the interesting thing about something like the Musgrove no hitter was we still were not out of the whole COVID restriction things. And I think we still aren't in some part with, as far as the traveling broadcast teams. So this game, you know, it wasn't even in Petco Park, San Diego. It was in Globe Life Field in Texas, like a brand new ballpark on its second year. Technically, it's first if you think about it, because it was really occupied for the most part in that first season by cardboard cutouts. So, I mean, we're talking about like the 2021 season, and 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 you're you're calling your you're calling your team's first no hitter in history from your own ballpark in the visiting TV booth. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the radio team, they really had. They really were tasked with basically doing what they do every day and painting the picture for their listeners, and that's exactly what they had to do because they're kind of painting the picture for themselves. They're watching the stuff on a monitor, and so they really, you know, okay, well, we really have to create this visual now, don't we? You know, we're not even taking in the roller, we're not taking in the fresh air from the ballpark. You know, we're not we're not hearing the sights and sound, or we're not hearing the sound or seeing the sights. You know, and and so. As the game was going along, they were able to still tell the story of a kid who's, you know, grew up in San Diego and was a fan of the Padres going to Petco Park as as a young fan, and now he's throwing the first no-hitter in team history. And, yeah. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great story, but it's also a great backstory when you think of, of the, the situation where these guys are calling this game that's happening 1,300 miles away. 
They're looking at it on a monitor. They're 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 taking their fans through history, his, historical uh, you know historical game, and 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 they have what they have. You know, they have two fold out tables <laughs> that they're basically they're they're not even at like an actual broadcast booth desk. I mean, they're like <laughs> in this makeshift thing. This is like this is like when you were in your parents' basement making, you know, like Wayne's World kind of thing, you know. <laughs> like, we got what we got, this is what we're doing, and we're calling a game. And we're calling a historical game, and here, here, this is what we've got, and we're doing it. And they did. And, you know, and Tony Gwynn Jr., and it's uh, Jesse Agler the lead on the call, Tony Gwynn Jr. helping them, and there they are, <laughs> doing it just like Wayne and Garth. <laughs> I, lo- I love that analogy. <laughs> um, Kirk, you, you certainly covered all the teams and the, the different broadcasters and everything um, from so many different perspectives in describing the ballpark and you know having the, these play-by-play broadcasters describe what has happened with their team, what is going on with their team. Tom McCarthy with the Phillies, uh, Brian Anderson and Bob Uecker, among those with the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, Bob Uecker also uh, known to a lot of other people as Harry Doyle for Major League, uh, <laughs> and I think he took on a whole nother um, or grew his audience from there. John Miller with the Giants and the Orioles, um, and certainly Sunday Night Baseball for a while with ESPN. Hawk Harrelson with the White Sox. Tom Hamilton, as you mentioned earlier, with Cleveland, um, and, and and so on and so forth. Chip Carey, um, Bob Costas. I mean, in, in talking to all these broadcasters and, and gathering up all these stories for, for your book, The Voices on Baseball, I mean, what, what were some of your biggest takeaways from, um, you know, talking with and, and learning, uh, talking with these broadcasters and learning about these teams? I, I was talking with Bob Costas the other day just on the phone. I, I, that's one of the wonderful things about having Bob Costas in my, in my uh, phone uh, book and contacts is that... Uh, he, when he texts me, he says, Can, do you have a minute to talk? Well, yes, of course I do, Mr. Costas. <laughs> I don't have a minute to talk to Bob Costas. But I told him at the end of our conversation, I said, I feel like I should have a notepad every time I talk to you because it's just you're just so fulgent with 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 knowledge. And, and, he, and, and talking with, uh, you know, Bob Costas over the summer and, and having him, you know, we all know his name. We all know his voice. We all know what he does, and he does it over multiple sports. But you know him in baseball, obviously, and he's he's definitely got a heart to baseball. And and he calls, you know, he's talking about calling the game, and, and you have to realize as a, as a national broadcaster, on a national broadcast, like on NBC Game of the Week or wherever it is he's been calling games, you know, over his career, that you're not necessarily calling for any one team in particular on so many one home broadcasts like WFAN or KMLX or, mm. you know, uh, KDK, whatever out there in Pittsburgh. I can't think of a sport right now. I don't want to hear it. But, you know, it, and, uh, <clears throat> and so you're, you're not necessarily calling, you know, and he made the comparison of like, you know, if you're calling a game in Cincinnati, Everybody knows who Joe Burrow is, but if you're calling the game, you know, for a national broadcast, at least before the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, you know, not too many people know Joe Burrow versus Tom Brady. And so, you know, he was calling, Bob Costas was basically called in for that game that was uh, Jeter's final game at Yankee Stadium, and he was doing the broadcast for it himself. And everybody in the world knows who Derek Jeter is, so it makes it easier for him, but it's not always the case. So you get, 
super 90s little tidbits of, of knowledge from these broadcasters realizing that they have to approach the game with a different style. I'll give the example of uh, Ryan LeFever, and I know that this is an East Coast-based uh, show, but I, I think that maybe the fans, although it's a, it's a sad moment, it's still they can appreciate uh, the broadcasting element of it. So Ryan LeFever is calling the game for the Royals in 2015. You know, it's in city. It's the, the Royals were ahead by five runs, and there's there's no way the Mets were going to be winning. But still, the fans were still alive in there at City Field, and but they were still alive. And then that last out was recorded. That last, if it was, I don't know if it was a pop out to center field or whatever it was, but Ryan said that the the stadium just went completely quiet. And as a broadcaster, you you know you're you're trying to encapsulate the moment for those listening on the radio back in Kansas City. And, of course, you want to be alive with emotion, and you want to be able to kind of feed off of that crowd energy, which so many broadcasters do. But on the road, it's a different story, especially when a place like New York City goes quiet and dead where there's 40,000 fans, and you want to, and you want to basically sit there and, and, and shout and show that emotion, which you did. But you also have that other factor coming in against you where you – you know, it's kind of like when there's when you're sitting there talking to your neighbor uh, at a show. You know, you're not your neighbor, but like a person sitting next to you at like a show, a concert, and the band's playing, and you're like, appreciate your your time and this was a, again a fantastic book um the voices of baseball the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on america's pastime um loved reading the book and this is um something great that i think everybody should give it a read um you know not just free for your team out there but get to know all the broadcasters who have called games for teams across the major leagues over the last several decades uh, appreciate your time in, in coming on and talking about the book thank you and uh thank you for having me Absolutely. Go to you can find Kirk's book on Amazon.com. Again, the voices of baseball, the game's greatest broadcasters, reflect on America's pastime with Kirk McKnight. More Shore Sports Talk on 94.3 The Point right after this, sponsored by Shoreline Wealth Management. Whether you're in the early stages of investing, getting ready to retire, or planning your estate, you need a financial planner who will guide you on a clear path with honesty and transparency. Shoreline Wealth Management understands that you are more than your money, and they strive to help you realize your best life as they align your finances with your goals. Best of all, Shoreline's straightforward approach will include you in the process. Shoreline Wealth Management is your financial anchor. Visit ShorelineWealth.com for for more information, ShorelineWealth.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC.